Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We will be picking up at chapter 3 with the third address to a son. That's the third of ten. So we're moving along through the various parts of this first book, so to speak, within the book of Proverbs, namely that penned by Solomon himself. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So picking back up at chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So we have here yet another example thoroughgoing thus far in Proverbs, of the father speaking to his son or wisdom speaking to those who will heed her, urging not to forget or to guard or to keep or to actively seek or pursue wisdom commandments teaching. So there is this injunction not to forget the teaching. Is it possible for us to then forget the teaching? Obviously. (laughs) Obviously. So we want to be aware of that and guard against that. I think in, in every sense, knowledge is somewhat perishable. Thus the show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? At one point in time, you were a fifth grader and you knew all that trivia. Now you don't. So there is a sense of use it or lose it in terms of knowledge in general. But when we even get to the narrow field of specifically religious, that is Christian, knowledge or wisdom, we find that it too can be forgotten within us. It too can be perishable within us. Now, to make the right distinction, the word of, the God, is, uh, the word of God is imperishable, The word of God dwells eternally, but it can perish within our hearts because our hearts don't recall it, remember it, use it, and thus we lose it. It's one of the worst parts of taking a vacation as a pastor is you literally get back and feel as though you've forgotten how to preach. I think once, was that right? No, maybe not. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, once I went because we have frequently had uh, multi-staff at this parish, once I went a month without preaching. And when I got back to it, it was like I had forgotten how to ride the bike. I have to remember, okay, how, does, how do you write this thing again? So theological knowledge is, is um, perishable in that sense. Again, not in and of itself, but regarding its use in us poor fallen sinners. So we are urged not to forget the teaching 
But let your heart keep, and this word in Hebrew, in Greek, and in English all retain within it this sense of guarding, guarding the commandments. Who or what would like to snatch the treasure of the commandments away from you? Yeah, the tri- I'm hearing the trifecta of evil. The devil, the world, and our sinful nature. All of these things are at work to strip away God's commandments from us. So God graciously gives his commandments to us and implants them in our hearts. But the devil comes and tries to snatch them away. He does this in myriad ways, outright contradiction, ways of emphasis. It's important, but not that important. The wisdom of the world is superior. You should bend your theological wisdom to the framework of your earthly wisdom, so on and so forth. So we need to actively keep or guard the commandments that are entrusted to us, just as we need to actively remember them or not forget them. And that is a theme that repeats even uh, as Paul writes to Timothy that he would guard the deposit that has been given to him. Now, here we have three promises then attached in verse 2 to the end of this sentence. For length of days, there's the first, and years of life, there's the second, and shalom or peace, they will add to you. So in specific, the commandments will give you length of days, years of life, and peace. Of course, so well worn as to almost be cliche, shalom, the Hebrew concept of peace, would maybe more accurately have something to do with wholeness or wholesomeness, a sense of completeness. So, do we have a temporal blessing here attached to the keeping of God's commandments, the remembrance of his teachings? Absolutely. And the large catechism doesn't shy away from this. There's hardly a page in the large catechism where Luther doesn't promise temporal and eternal blessings for keeping the commandments of God. And so that continues here. I would only add that we're all aware of exceptions to this statement. We're all aware of Christians who have been very faithful in keeping the commandments, and yet they have not experienced length of days or years of life or shalom, peace, wholeness. These exceptions don't contradict the rule, rather they establish the rule. And these exceptions themselves, foremost exception, at least from our vantage point, would be who? Who is the one who keeps the commandments perfectly, yet doesn't experience an extreme length of days, years of life? He does have shalom, I would say. Christ himself. So Christ himself poses an interesting exception to this. And is it really an exception? That would be the, that would be the next meditation. Is it really an exception? Because though his earthly life, so to speak, is cut short, he is risen to live 
forever. And so also we who are faithful, we who trust in Christ, have this same promise applied to us. That even if earthly life is cut short, we don't experience length of days or years of life, temporally speaking, what abides and remains is the eternal promise. You can think of the beauty of, what, of Jesus' statement in John's Gospel, Though you die, yet shall you live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That is to say that what Christ has done on the cross is not merely rendered death neutral. He's reversed death into a positive thing for the Christian. All that dies is the old Adam within you, not you proper. Whoever lives and believes in me, that's the new creature that he has created within you, will never die. So we pass through death unscathed. And then we have the fulfillment of length of days and years of life and shalom stretching out into eternity, so to speak. So that's ultimately where these statements push and drive us to consider that this life isn't all there is. This world is not our home. Having long life here could be equal parts blessing or curse depending upon who you are or how you're thinking about it. And there are many examples in the scriptures, not least of which Job, many of the psalmists, David chief among them, and the minor prophets who all complain that they aren't experiencing length of days, years of life, and peace, even though they are faithful to the commandments and stand out or outstanding amongst their generation in terms of their faithfulness and commitment to these very things. So there is a, a, this duality of temporal and eternal. And there, are, there is some biblical complexity there that we can flesh out. But suffice it to say, I think here in these opening lines of the third address of ten to a son, you have promised, as a general promise, temporal and eternal blessings for remembering, that is not forgetting, and for keeping or guarding, not letting them be taken from you, the teaching and commandments. Let's pause there, see if you have any reflections, thoughts, feedback. If not, that's fine too. Take a sip of coffee and we'll move on. All right, very good. Verse 2, or excuse me, 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Well, first, steadfast love is this word kesed in Hebrew, and it's a very important word when God is the subject. This is the steadfast love, so the kesed of Yahweh endures forever. The kesed of Yahweh is his non-conditional, unconditional love and his promises in Christ Jesus to us. It, his promises to the Old Testament saints and the Christ who you know, is to come from their vantage point and he who has come from ours. But that's the kesed of Yahweh. And it flips over and has its referent in us as well, though it doesn't carry nearly the gravitas or significance. 
So here the cassette is not Yahweh's, which endures forever, but ours. And of course, we recall from the New Testament, John's treatment of this, we love because he first loved us. So we have cassette for Yahweh because he has cassette for us, and that first and foundationally. So our love for God and love for neighbor is always flowing from God's love to us. So let not cassette and faithfulness um, In his commentary, Steinman from our St. Louis Seminary prefers the translation, let not mercy and truth forsake you. I like those words because they really ring home to our modern context, don't they? We can see how easy it is to be forsaken by mercy and truth. Truth, of course, because the world is just getting pummeled with lies. Our media is just filled with lies. How can you tell what's true? doesn't matter whether you're watching Fox or CNN or anything. How can you tell what's true anymore? So our world is being swallowed up in deceitfulness and lies and manipulations. It's very easy then to let truth forsake us, to simply go along with them. We want to cling instead to the immovable unchangeable, imperishable truth of God's word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So all the more do we want to cling to the word of God and reserve for that word of God the highest level and degree of our certainty. What kinds of political, scientific, philosophical, mathematical, any other Uh, categories of knowledge, what kind of certainty can we have in these spheres? It's always going to have a penultimate character to it. You can be certain that the world, and I think obviously it is the case subjectively, that the world is a sphere, it's not flat. You can be certain of that, but you're not certain of that to the same degree with which you're certain of the word of God itself. That word of God reserves a special place in our hearts where we say that is, to make a distinction, capital T truth, absolute truth, not subject to any shadow or change. Everything else we can say, yeah, I believe this to be the case. And you can see how we're treading now into philosophical territory. I know this to be the case, but not with the same degree of certainty. So, to be locked into the Father's Word, to be locked into Christ and His teaching, the teaching of the Scriptures, um, this is foundational, then, to wisdom. And the second, I think, why this is so fitting for us is because in our battle for the truth these days, it's easy to battle for the truth, but in such a way that we lose mercy, And we forget we're dealing with human beings. And we can forget that the point is not to be right. The point is not to make people feel stupid. Uh, The point is to win souls. To let the voice of wisdom, here in Proverbs, or or the voice of the Father, speak through our lips to those of the world, that they might come to the knowledge of the truth in Christ Jesus and be saved. 
So I love, I love that translation just because it rings very pertinent in our ears not to let mercy or truth forsake us. Again, we see that there's an, an activity on our part, a kind of cooperation on our part that we shouldn't shy away from in the least. We see that active language continue in the latter half of this verse. Bind them. Here, them is kased, steadfast love and faithfulness, mercy and truth. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Binding them around your neck, let that be your greatest treasure. And, of course, the pendant that hangs from the neck happens to hang over the heart. So there's that parallelism. And with the next and and final line, write them on the tablet of your heart. That word tablet in Hebrew is a bit of a technical term. It's the very term used in Exodus 24 when God writes the law down on the tablets of stone and gives them to Moses um, at the covenant. So this is evoking covenantal themes and the idea of as God wrote his word on the stone, now let him write his word on fleshly living hearts. And of course, kased and faithfulness, steadfast love and faithfulness are exactly the the content of that law written on our hearts because it is love for God, as, as Christ teaches today in our gospel text, as Vicar preaches, it is love for God and love for neighbor. So, active language, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. They don't write themselves there. They don't bind themselves around your neck. To suggest such would be to do violence against the text itself. So we can think once more of that admonition of our Lord Jesus to take care how you hear. There's more to being a Christian than simply arranging so that your derriere is in the pew on Sunday morning once a week for 56 years and that's it. You check the box, you did your duty. God has much more for us than that. All right, so let's pause there because we've come to the second major thought of this address and see if you have any reflections on that. I see a hand all the way up front here. As far as things being written on tablets on our hearts, could that be also be connected to what Paul talks about the Gentiles having the law written on their hearts? Mm, mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Categorically different. So when we talk about uh, the Gentiles having the law written on their hearts, we're talking about the natural revelation of God, the natural law, And usually our experience of that is through the conscience. Their conscience either accusing them or excusing them. Paul's point being that those without the law, those who did not receive the Sinaitic covenant, are yet still without excuse because of the law that was written on their hearts. 
So far, so good? That's the first category and way of speaking. But the New Testament promise in particular is that, do you recall Jeremiah 31, where uh, Jeremiah is prophesying of a new covenant that will come. And that covenant will contain the forgiveness of sins, but that covenant will also contain the law of God being written into the heart. That's categorically different. You'd say, well, isn't it already there? And isn't it there in the form of the conscience? But what's actually being foretold there is what we readily call the new man, the creation of the new man, in whose heart is penned innately that word of God. And we find it within us not as an alien thing, but as an ontologically consistent thing. That is to say, that law penned in our hearts is exactly who we are and what we desire. So there is a categorical difference between those two things. And I would argue that neither of those is particularly what's in view here in this section. Again, the presupposition is that God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to his people whom he has already claimed as his own. And the presupposition is that they already believe and trust in Yahweh and are interested in hearing what he has to say. As he's spoken and continues to speak, he gives them the gift of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But all of that is presupposed in a text like this. He is speaking now to his sons, to his saints, and so there's zero problem whatsoever with him using active language with people whom he has given new hearts. And this is, this is a key to understanding how the New Testament scriptures as well, how our Lord and his apostles aren't synergists, though they everywhere desire and They use active language and desire us to be active as Christians. I I can't tell you how many times I've seen Lutherans embarrassed when Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and Lutherans go, Well, we all know we can't do that. A a complete missing of the point. An, An utter missing of the point. Jesus is already speaking to those who are his disciples, who have entrusted themselves to him. And then he says to them, seek. Might respond with an Old Testament text. Your face, Lord, do I seek? Oh, how dare you, you synergist. Uh, Pardon me, that's the Holy Spirit. So let's, if we get our theology straight, if we understand the distinction between justification and sanctification between the creating of the new creature, which is wholly God's work, and the participation of the new creature in the work of God, we can avoid all synergism and we can simply align ourselves with Lutheranism. The kind you find in the formula of Concord, where in Article 2 on the free will, the entire first half of the article is that Our will by nature is bound in sin, and we can in no way turn to God. God, through his gospel, through his work alone, converts and turns us. Second half of Article 2 on free will. 
since God has converted and turned us, since he has given us a new heart, since Christ has set us free as he promised, the truth will set you free. Now we are free to participate and cooperate in the very works of God. That's why Paul, for the pastoral ministry, even uses the language of synergism. We are co-workers, synergists with God. He doesn't mean that with the theological baggage that comes in later centuries. So, with all of this in mind then, we can simply hear these words without immediately going, well, I don't do these things, I should panic. And hear them as fatherly admonitions, admonitions of tenderness and love, and a father who says, do these things because it's going to be good for you. It's going to bring you temporal and eternal blessings. It's going to give you temporal length of days, years of life, and shalom. And that is going to extend to you for all eternity. Okay? So far, so good. So, sorry, I know that wasn't your question. But I do want to make that statement as often as I can, because that's going to be a key to understanding not only Proverbs, but really the whole of the Bible. Otherwise, we're going to get all mangled up, and we're going to start correcting the Holy Spirit and making active verbs into passive verbs because our quote-unquote theology demands it. Can you imagine the audacity? I, I cannot, and I cannot stomach it. So if you're changing the verbs in Scripture from active verbs to passive verbs because your Lutheran theology tells you to do so, you've got something so mangled and messed up, you really ought to go revisit the large catechism. Okay, so uh, any, was there another hand? We're okay? All right, let's go a little further then. So this is, of course, one of the most beloved verses of, uh, or we're coming up on it anyway, we're coming up on one of the most beloved verses uh, in all of Proverbs. Okay, in verse 4 we have, So you will find favor and good success... Where, um, for example, the, in, in the Psalms we pray, prosper the work of our hands. The man who builds, builds in vain if the Lord does not build it. That kind of thing going on. So, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Um, that can uh, be attached to what came f- uh, formerly in verse 3. That by binding steadfast love and faithfulness around your neck by writing them on the tablet of your heart you find favor and good success in the sight of God and man and by the way I think that there would be nothing wrong in the least I wouldn't object if someone said that hey binding them around your neck and writing them on the tablet of your heart are ways of saying commit to memory I would have no problem with that I think that that's about right and that's really the way we talk to our our young people when they go through confirmations we say we want, why do we have to memorize these things, Pastor? Uh, you have to have a certain mental aptitude in order to graduate. No. We want these things to be memorized so that they are written in your hearts. That's the whole point. We can think of times and places in which our Bibles might um, not be available to us, might be taken away from us. What then? You're going to want that Word of God written on your heart. You're going to have opportunities where you're speaking to people, and it's not convenient to say, hey, let me go get my Bible. 
Let me look this up. You want to have that word of God written on your heart. So it's for your good, for the good of your neighbor. Thus, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. We can think of that as, a, as temporally, you know, temporal blessings. Um, but again, when we think of our Lord Jesus, we think of it as being much more than temporal, also eternal blessings. All right, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Here, one of the most famous and beloved verses in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And again, I would submit to you that this is active language and intentionally so. We can talk about faith as a passive trust in God and a trust that he creates within us. A trust that really goes deeper than anything else. It's analogous to a little infant um, in mom's arms who's content And then baby gets handed over to someone who's not mom, and baby instantly starts fussing and crying. Baby doesn't, as far as we know, have the cognitive skills, let alone the verbal skills, to articulate what's going on. There is something deeper than cognitive and verbal skills going on in the baby where the baby knows, hey, I trust those arms, that's familiar, that's mom, and these other arms aren't. Again, the baby can't articulate any of that. It's deeper than that. That is a beautiful analogy for faith. Faith that is passive and written so deeply uh, by God into our hearts that it is subcognitive, sublingual. Such that even if you got in a horrific accident where you could no longer think or no longer speak, your heart has already been conformed into that passive uh, trust of God as, as a child trusts parents innately, deeply, deeper than anything else, okay? Then we can also speak of trust actively, and that's what's going on here, that after God has written this trust into us, we are challenged by many things that, say, that seem to say to us, is God trustworthy? Does God keep his promises? Does he love you as he says he loves you? And that is the place then for active trusting, as we have here in verse 5, to trust in the Lord with all your heart, to throw yourself upon his word and his promises and him, and that put in antithesis to what? Leaning on your own understanding. So again, here we have, we can make, I should say, a kind of epistemological distinction and a helpful one, epistemology being like, how do you know what you know? And how do you know what you know is objective? The distinction we can make here is that when we trust in the Lord, we are trusting in the one who is objective, capital O, who is Knowledge, capital K, who is truth, capital T. And we can throw ourselves upon him and upon his word and trust it with childlike faith. He says it, I believe it. Even if our reason begins to contradict those things that God is saying to us. So in uh, later Lutheran theology, this distinction gets called the magisterial and ministerial 
uses of reason. Is Christianity a religion that is contrary to reason? You could answer correctly (laughs) either way. In the one sense, no. All of Christianity is based on reason and is reasonable. The Lord even says in Isaiah, come let us reason together. Okay? So we've got no problem with reason. But what we do find is that in the fallen world, our reason is every bit as turned against God as our will and emotions are. And so we can then see a distinction between our own understanding, our own reason, and what the Word of God says. And very frequently, these are going to be antithetical or contrary to one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is your chapter to turn to if you really want to study this all via Paul. What then is the role and purpose of reason within Christian theology? Not the magisterial use of reason, which is where you, you, with your reason, sit above the word of God and say, well, I have to understand it first. It has to present itself to me as true and reasonable, and then I'll believe it. What is that but to assert yourself as God over God, put yourself on the judgment throne, and judge whether or not his word is worthy of you taking it into account. So we don't want a magisterial use of reason, but rather a ministerial use of reason. That is to say that we trust in the Lord with all our heart, we dismiss our own understanding if our own understanding is contradicting that word of God. Once we have that word of God, then and we believe that word of God, then we turn reason back on as minister or servant of that word. So take a foundational statement of Christianity that Christ is true God and true man. Reason cannot comprehend this. Reason recoils against it. How can in one person there be the knowledge of all things and yet one who grows in wisdom and stature? Reason recoils, can't take it, says it's rubbish and nonsense. That's the kind of magisterial reason we want to turn off. We want to believe what the word says, in this case, that Christ is true God and true man, then we turn reason back on and articulate the ways in which that's true and not true, faithful to the scriptures or articulated in a way that is not faithful to the revelation of the scriptures. Augustine summarizes all of this wonderful in a little Latin phrase. I probably say it about every other month here. Hopefully, uh, you know, you'll absorb that. Crede ut intelligas. Believe in order to understand. Not understand in order that you may believe. Believe in order that you may understand. That's the ministerial use of reason. And that is at the heart of a kind of noetic or epistemological distinction we can make here in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. All right, we can pause there if you want to have any dialogue, conversation. Yeah, please, all the way in the back, a couple of hands.
once when we were dialoguing with Mormons about this, they said God created everything, and because he did, he would not work outside of those edicts, you know, natural law, i.e. natural law. And so you can understand everything based on what he's created. And I said, well, can God work outside of that? And they said, well, we don't think so. And I thought that was odd Mm -hmm. because they keep bringing God down to their level rather than knowing that he is superior. Mm -hmm. And and one more comment, you said uh, memorization. I read one place when the Russians took Bibles away from the people. They were able to hold church services because they memorized the liturgy. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And, and that, they knew the Bible verses because of that. Oh, 100%. And that is, that is one of the best arguments to keep a liturgy unchanging. And you go, well, I'm bored with it. Well, since it's all about you, let's change it. <laughs> what, ab- what about the little children? <laughs> uh, it, and it is absolutely a beautiful thing, as any pastor can attest, when you go and visit people in the hospital... Even people, by the way, from other traditions that have retained, that you get called in sometimes if you're wearing a black shirt. They don't really care. They just want you at the, at the bedside. And you have opportunity. And insofar as there's a shared Western liturgy, they know it. It's written in their hearts. It's written in the hearts of the people you go and visit as a pastor. That's a wonderful thing. That's the main reason to have a liturgy that doesn't change. But we want it to be creative and filled with pizzazz. Okay, I guess you're free to do that, but what are you sacrificing in order to have it new and novel? Now, could could we perhaps find a balance there? Yeah, I um, I wouldn't be against that. But that is the strength of even retaining a particular setting of the... One of our settings says present and eternal, and the other says temporal and eternal, and so I'm forever saying temporal. <laughs> Luther said, don't, ch- don't mess around with the words, and we said, can't hear you, and messed around with them all the time. I, and it's just a shame. And uh, Half the reason our people don't know the benediction is because we've changed the words. And, I, and if, if you want to try to like, catch the pastor stumbling, you can usually catch me at one of these places, but remember when it was um, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, we're all like, well, people will never understand that. Might there be a dictionary? Might, might there be an internet or some resource by which we could come to understand words we don't understand? No, let's change it. So now it's, uh, oh, what is it? Favor. Um, yeah, may he show his favor to you, or however that last line goes, um, since the 1980s. So, yeah, we're constantly fiddling around with the words, and the result is that we lose it because it's not ingrained there. If, it's, if, you, can't be, if you can't be set that it's this or that, your brain goes, must not be that important. So it, there is a lot of rationale to keeping the translations the same. Uh, Luther was big on that, even in terms of the scripture citations. Uh, we decided to ignore that too recently when we went from the NIV scriptures quoted in, and used uh, in the churches, in the small catechism is what I was referring to, now to the ESV. We're constantly fooling around with it, and it's not good 
pedagogically. That's the problem. Anybody who has little kids knows that. You've got to keep it the same. So, Anyway, I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but thank you. Yeah, the liturgy and it written in our hearts via the liturgy, it written in our hearts via song, all of these things are immeasurably important. And we don't know when we're going to find ourselves in circumstances like you mentioned in Russia. It doesn't even need to get that cataclysmic. We need those words written in our heart for daily life, for the interactions we have with our neighbors, um, for times in which we're sick and the pastor or nobody else can get to us. Remember COVID? Hope you had the word of God written in your heart because they weren't letting me in there. Threatening to tase us if we tried to break through. So, yeah, I hope, hope you have it. I, and that's, I mean, that's why we want it written in your hearts and minds. The church wants it written in all of our hearts and minds because the future just can't be predicted. And you need to have that there. And nobody can hold your hand. There's no guarantee that somebody can hold your hand at those times. Okay, was there another hand? Please. Yes. Will you please explain more in depth about with dementia and and Alzheimer's, how you approach that magisterially and ministerially? Thank Mm -hmm. you. I've been thinking, yeah, I've been thinking about this um, next week for my sermon, and I may, I may end up going there, but, okay, the word is always central in Christian theology, always central. But there are ways in which, in a narrow sense, God can work apart from the Word. And all of our dogmaticians and theologians have recognized this. Uh, how, how do we know? Are there deaf people who believe? So when Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of the Lord, we shouldn't read that as an absolute exclusive. So there are limits, or maybe better we could say contours. There is some subtlety and nuance to the centrality of the word. There is a great deal of mystery when it comes to the word as well, which I won't have time to get into this morning. But suffice it to say that, take a biblical example where the word of Christ can penetrate a dead, man's, a dead man's ears and bring him to life in the case of uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead. That's what I mean by mystery. Can the word of God penetrate through dementia or unconsciousness or whatever else? Well, if it can penetrate through to a dead man's eardrums and into his heart and raise him, I would say yes. And when I go visit people in the hospital, I, the nurse says to me, oh, he's unconscious, he won't hear you. And I act like I can't hear her. <laughs> I go right about my business because I know that the word of the Lord can do whatever he wants it to do. All right, so then... What we have to say is that while there is a cognitive or intellectual aspect of the faith, and and a very important, a very central one, I want to take nothing away from it, we can't mistake that as the organ by which God is ascertained or understood or received. It has to be deeper than that. It has to be the soul. 
received by faith in the soul, which has to be deeper than what we would view as cognition or lingual ability or any other kind of thing. We don't look at people who are um, have severely mental or uh, severely mentally handicapped and so, say, "Well, I guess the gospel's not for you." We preach and proclaim the gospel to them. We baptize them. We treat them as though they are Christian, because our faith is in the Word of God, and because we have no reason to believe that they don't believe. We entrust them to God, and and if we had a little bit of humility, we'll realize that we're only separated from them by degree. We see it as this gigantic chasm. Oh, well, I, I can cognate. Oh, really? How much? I mean, the angels probably look at that and snicker. <laughs> oh, you think Einstein was brilliant? Says the dumbest angel. <laughs> yeah, so, so it, with a little bit of humility, then, we can see a number of things. We can see that they're not precluded or excluded from the gospel of Christ. The word's powerful enough to reach them. But we can also learn a kind of secondary thing, and that's as is, is important as knowledge and cognition and memorization and all the rest might be, that's not it. There's something deeper, and that deeper is the Christian soul, the Christian heart that simply receives God's word. I, I would even go so far as to say perhaps in a subcognitive way, at least in a way that's incomprehensible to us. The same way that word penetrates the ears of a dead man penetrates the ears of a deaf man, um, can penetrate the heart of, of an unthinking man or a demented man or a, an Alzheimer's, someone suffering from Alzheimer's. You see where I'm going with that. I don't mean any of it pejoratively. I'm just trying to drive home the point. Yeah. Hopefully that helps. All right. Pastor, yeah, I have please. a follow-up. Um, we were in a situation where Bob's mother was dying and the family was gathered around. We're Katie and Bob and I, three Lutherans, everybody else non-denominational. Mm. And we started singing the Nunc Dimittis, mm. prayed the Lord's Prayer, sang part of the liturgy. And they didn't know what we were... They said, where did you get that? And we said, the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the comment one of them made was, oh, you Lutherans, you do all that. Right. <laughs> and so that's just my comment. Yeah, that's great. That's great fun. Exactly right. Yeah, it's, and that's, um, I mean, you, you again illustrate where the, uh, the liturgy is so apropos as we're ministering to one another, especially in times of uh, death. And um, I, I actually thought you were going to go another way. I'm going to imagine that you were going that way so I can say what I want to say. How's that? <laughs> All right. Um, but, but that's the great strength of Lutheran theology at the deathbed in contrast to, and I'm not trying to bash here, but in contrast to American evangelicalism sitting at the deathbed, and, and I've witnessed this m- multiple occasions, is evangelicalism goes, you know, hey, hey, Daddy, the Lord loves you. Squeeze my hand if you believe in him. And there's no hand squeeze. You know. um, give me some sign. Blink if, you're, if you have faith in Jesus. And there's no sign. And so the family stirred up and fraught with uncertainty and insecurity. They don't know if dad believes. Dad hadn't been to church in a few years. We're preaching the gospel to him, but the gospel's dependent upon his choosing, his act of the will, his assenting through blinking or squeezing or stating or something. He's got to show us something or else he's not saved. 
that's an impoverished theology to be polite about it. It's a demonic theology and the rubber hitting the road um, to be blunt about it. Because the gospel is objective. It's done. God's not saying you're forgiven if you make a decision, write your name on the dotted line, sign the contract, show some sort of fruit. No, Christ is crucified as the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. The strength of Lutheran theology, biblical theology, is just to go into the hospital bed and proclaim the gospel. Say to this man, with, in the presence of his children, your sins are forgiven. The Lord loves you. You belong to him. And state the objective fact of the gospel, assuming that that word, because it is God's word, is penetrating that heart and doing exactly what it needs to do. And if not, that's God's business, not ours. And what is the surety or the certainty then, Pastor, that my dad's in heaven? Well, the surety and certainty of God's promises made to him. Yes, but what if he didn't believe? Well, what if anyone doesn't believe? We commend all people into the hands of our good and gracious Father. We know that he desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We know that that desire is instantiated in Christ's objectively accomplished sacrifice for the sins of the world. So we go in and we state these things bluntly. And, you know, again, there I'm not trying to like, be proud or puffed up or boast, but there, well, maybe so. Let's boast in Christ Jesus. Paul says that's okay. I'm not going to boast in anything except Christ. So there's the boasting of our theology. And it's just, it's revealed in these very poignant moments of life the deathbed, the graveside, uh, great, terrible suffering. That's just where it, we shine the brightest, but it doesn't mean that we don't outshine in every other aspect as well. We do. It's just those are the places where it's indisputable. So uh, I wanted to just insert that too because I know many, many of us, probably all of us, at some point in time in our lives have had that experience or will have that experience. And so the very practical wisdom of the scriptures the very practical wisdom of, of our Lord is simply speak the truths of God objectively to that person. Whether or not they quote-unquote respond to it is almost immaterial. It's completely insignificant from our vantage point. God, God doesn't send us places to elicit a response of faith. God sends us places to proclaim the gospel. So we proclaim the gospel and let the response of faith be in God's hands where it always is. It's not our business. I don't really, I mean, in terms of like just like duty-based, I don't care if somebody believes or not. That's not my concern. My concern that Christ has given me is go and preach the word. God says, after that, I'll take care of the rest. Okay. Okay, did I see a, a couple hands, a couple hands. Pastor, it's interesting. Everything you've been saying about end of life also applies at the beginning of life. Absolutely. Right? And, and you know, Lutherans are often uh, excoriated for infant faith. Right. Right? That we believe that baptized infants have faith. Mm -hmm. Well, it works exactly the same way because we don't create faith. Yep. The Holy Spirit does that. And, uh, you know, and he can do it in an infant. He can do it in a, 
in a person who's dying of Alzheimer's. He can do it in somebody who's dreamlessly sleeping, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He can do oh, it exactly in anything, right. anybody at any time. He can create faith. Yes, exactly. Uh, right. uh, you know, so mm-hmm. anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and our default should be like, as we proclaim the gospel, our assumption should be that people believe. We should be astonished and taken back when they don't. Why would you not believe the word of God? We, we have, uh, I, I'll try to make this really short, but we've conceded too much ground when we expect that they won't believe and when we expect that they actually have merit to their argument in response, whatever that may be. We ought to view it as patently ridiculous that you, this, this little tiny grasshopper running around like on this dust ball planet, uh, would dare oppose the word of Almighty God who made the heavens and the earth. Right? So, again, I, all I'm saying is we should recapture, if nothing else, in our ethos a, the reality of who we're speaking for when we proclaim the gospel to people. And that we ought to be astonished that they would reject that. Yeah, please. Uh, I saw a hand somewhere. Was it all the way across the way? Somebody get shy now? Oh, there you are. <laughs> oh, dear. There's so many thoughts that I've had. I, I'll just go to this. Well, uh, God created the world, so what can't he do, even mm-hmm. beyond that? Yeah. And, uh, and Christ demonstrated this in the stilling of the sea, calling forth people from the dead, etc., etc. I have a book at home written by a scientist who was an atheist. His life motto was, seeing is believing. In the course of time, he became a Christian, and had accomplished three doctorates in three branches of science. And he came to understand that the exact opposite is the truth. Believing is seeing, even within science. Because in science, what do you actually see now? Mm, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. All right, looks like we've come to an end of our time. Let's pick up next week here in the middle of this third address to a son i think we'll be able to cover a little more ground but again i appreciate the dialogue and feedback because it makes our class uh, extremely meaningful and helpful to all so thank you for coming the lord be with you